Good evening, and welcome to another episode of the Living Fiction Podcast, Cheeky Memoirs of How a DID System Became a Manipulator's Personal Puppet Show. Twice! My name is Xanth, and I'm an alcoholic. I mean... I am your host, Sans Seidstruck, and also the host of the Living Fiction System. The trigger warnings for this episode, Mutually Assured Destruction, is as follows. Toxic relationships, abusive relationships, physical abuse, emotional manipulation, emotional blackmail. As I had mentioned before, April had a service dog, an untrained, purebred Shiba Inu. Amaterasu, as I'll call her, was quite the cutie, but her certification was merely the excuse April made to have no humanoid roommates and to have her dog with her at the university dorms. April did, in fact, have a sleeping condition. She described it to me as having narcolepsy without cataplexy, so when she fell asleep, she slipped almost immediately into REM, and was nearly impossible to wake. I knew at least this to be true, as I had suffered through her falling asleep at my flat before, but I digress. This was Amaterasu's job, to wake her, or it was supposed to be. Ideally, she would hear April's alarm and lick her face. Amaterasu was initially trained to do this, but April never kept up on the training, so naturally, her service dog's job fell to me. Just to make sure she got to class on time. Her absurdly expensive university had a very strict absentee policy. If she missed four days per quarter, it was an automatic fail. Too many of those, and she would lose scholarships. Most times, she would forget that she had requested me to call be getting ready all the while, and finally pick up the phone on the 35th round and say, what? I'm getting ready for class. Being as Vex used to be the abuser in her past relationship and was now still paying the price, I should have probably taken the hint when she told me, April reminds me too much of myself. She believed that myself and people like me were destined via a curse to always be in abusive relationships. It was to always mirror what had happened in her abusive relationship thousands of years ago when she broke her girlfriend's soul into pieces. Literally. Despite my best efforts, she would generally take three out of those four days off willingly and then be at risk for sleeping through another class by the end of it. We hadn't been dating for perhaps more than four months at this point when she made a confession over text. Yeah, you'd better hope that I don't lose my scholarships because I hate long-distance romances. I believe she was back home for the holidays when she did this. Her mom and dad may have been pissing her off enough to make a declaration. I was used to letting her rant, but this time she went a bit too far. If I flunk out of university, you can kiss our relationship goodbye. I remember staring at the phone. April kept on. We probably just wouldn't talk anymore. Even if we did reconnect afterwards, you'd have to start over on the base level of my trust. It's not hard to find someone quirky and bookish like you anyway. I'll probably find someone like you in my next city. 
I actually do not remember what I responded to this with. Probably something along the lines of, so you're saying you'll abandon me if you flunk out of university? But I was definitely somewhere else. Vex was pacing around the room. We were still in my room, just a version of which that had a couch that she was pacing in front of. I knew it. You have all these ideas in your head, Xanth, that she would be the one to break the cycle, but no, she's just like I was. Vex, I don't want to talk about it. I interrupted her, but she kept going. Except she never learned from it. She's just Vex, selfish, spoiled, sadistic, and disappointing as the others. Vex! In a rare moment of physical aggression, I threw a Yankee candle in her direction to snap her out of it. I knew it wouldn't hit her. She disappeared, and then the veil was drawn back to reveal an empty space wherein both she and the couch were. April and I had certainly had disagreements, but this may have been the first real problem within the relationship. I have terrible abandonment issues, and I'm willing to put up with just about anything as long as that person still wants me around. For example, the fairy fantasy crew. And granted, she had never been cruel enough to promise we would be together forever and then back out of it. But she had gone out of her way to show me that she viewed me as disposable and unimportant. She put the pressure on me that I was to make sure she was awake and working, lest she decides to say fuck it to anything Savannah-related. My altars were not pleased. I vaguely remember Abilie, Koji, and Vex at the forefront of bad-mouthing April's threat of abandonment, snide remarks to their friends and April herself. Eventually, April apologized and relented her view. She made it clear that it was just so people could stop being all in arms about me. But hell, I'm a Scorpio. Years of trust can be undone in a single moment. And things definitely changed between us. I did begin to resent April. Seeing how she would be annoyed at having to take her dog out, yelling at the pitiful whining beast to just pee on the floor until the poor thing apologetically did. And then there was also Mr. Fedora, whom she hated but evidently kept around to feel superior. There was one interesting moment wherein my mum and grandmother visited me. That mum invited April out for dinner. Mum's treat. When April did show up, very late, she surprisingly had Mr. Fedora in tow. She didn't apologize for her lateness. She actually interacted with Fedora more than I, laughing at all of his jokes and even leaning into him. I knew that she hated him. We essentially just kept him around as a point of ridicule because things were tense if we had no common topic to feel better than. This is no longer a hobby I subscribe to, by the way. In fact, I think it was entirely April's prerogative. Fedora was not a terrible person, just vaguely sexist and quite dim. Granted, I have, for the purpose of this blog, personified him by the hat he always wore and the cliché that went with it. Some stereotypes exist for a reason. Mum, never one to raise a fuss in public, paid the bill for all of us. Fedora didn't even offer to pay his own. She certainly raised a fuss on the way to dropping me off there. I thought April was the one you had a crush on? You moved here just to be with her, right? Like, aren't you dating or something? Yeah, we are. Then why was she all over that guy? 
Is she even gay? I closed my eyes and recited the explanation I knew April would give me. She's bisexual, and she's a sociopath mom. It's basically a whole keep your friends close and enemies closer type of thing. She can't help it. She has to do this charisma masking thing. The fact that she hardly paid me any attention is proof that I'm more important to her. Mates, I was brainwashed, brainwashed. My mom gave an aggravated pause. Well, no matter what she has, that was rude. I was half tempted to tell that boy to pay for the whole meal. But hell, if there's anything you can do to assure the longevity of a relationship that your child has, it's to disapprove of it. I didn't listen. I wouldn't have. It was nearly impossible to have friends outside of April in my inworld. Granted, it was theoretically much easier for me to make friends in an art college city than it had ever been in Marysville, Ohio. There were practically fields of frolicking queers in their multicolored hair and their septum piercings. But God, was it hard to actually leave April alone and take advantage of that. See, she had these meal swipes on her student ID that entitled her to an unlimited round of cafeteria food three times a day. But at a glance, she pronounced all of her free food inedible and insisted on going out to eat every night. I had to come with her, for she claimed her anxiety prohibited her from eating alone. So, obviously, it was my duty to show up and watch her start to get ready. It didn't matter what time of day it was. I could be knocking at 6pm and she'd answer it, still in her pajamas, still with bedhead. I was due at her dorm on every day off I had, where I would waste two hours of the day, normally at tea time, to sit awkwardly as my partner would dress herself as slowly as humanly possible. I learned early that I needed to have a light meal or snack beforehand, or I may starve to death before we ever left. Even worse if we couldn't decide on where to eat. Where do you want to go to eat? I'd ask, like a fool. The response? Hello. Do you want to play a game? April, as a rule, rejected the first three suggestions with such offended ferocity that it was like suggesting a vegetable to a five-year-old. I may have had that just the other day, but how dare you suggest such slop in my presence? Sometimes most of the restaurants would be closed by the time that she had decided. I hated being the bearer of bad news. I feared her reaction. If we did make it to having dinner, it would be an impersonal affair. Did you hear what Romeo did when his child's first words were referring to Callisto instead of him? Yes, Jack does remind me of a peacock. Callisto, on the other hand, reminds me of Captain Peacock. You know, I think Wish actually talks to other kids. I think they just don't feel like talking to adults. Afterwards, we would retire to April's dorm. We'd choose from a scattering of DVDs to watch for the night. Sweeney Todd, Brave, Spirited Away, etc. Then, around 3am, I would try to venture home. Despite the lateness of the hour, April would often look up at me and ask, are you going home already? The tone was accusatory. If I answered the affirmative, I could never shake the feeling that I could be punished for it. Sometimes she would somehow place the cause of my leaving, not on the lateness of the armor, but of whatever she happened to be doing at the time. You hate video games, she texted me venomously. I know because you left while I was playing Legend of Zelda. You always seem to leave when I'm playing video games. I don't even know why we're together if we don't even share basic interests like this. 
This was condensing several texts in a row, by the way. I decided to spare my audience the full montage. Most of these were received, by the way, when I was playing Saints Row 2. What is that, you ask? A video game. I sent her a picture of my playing it as a response, and she went on a diatribe about how games like that and Grand Theft Auto and Call of Duty weren't real video games. I would argue, then she would threaten to break up with me. I don't remember being pained or frightened by the concept. I only feel exasperation when thinking back to it. But I must have reacted differently, must have begged my way back into her heart each time. We would then play the apology game, always through text. I'm sorry. For what? For you starting fights with me when you're bored? Damn. For making you mad. Wrong. Try again. What do you want me to apologize for, then? I already told you. I do remember scrolling up and seeing what the hell she was talking about. Near the end, I was just using quotes of hers in the format of an apology. Whatever name or insult she'd come up for me. Eventually, I'd have it right. Or, at least, close enough. Our first fight in the relationship was actually over sex. She had this weird habit of holding the concept over my head like it was a treat for a surprisingly well-behaved mongrel. A roasting tease or some sort of perceived shortfalling on my part, and I'd get hit with, someone doesn't want laid tonight. She would ask me to do her chores, take Amaterasu out, sweep the floor, and let her choose the movie and the restaurant. Or else, no sex, and she'd state this often. It was like we were a dysfunctional couple in a 90s sitcom, with her dangling a carrot on a stick and me being expected to pant like a dog and maybe slap my foot against the ground for good measure. I could honestly give a fuck whether we had sex, pun intended, but when I finally expressed my discomfort with this dynamic, she flew into a rage as if she'd been expecting it. There was no actual rebuttal to my concerns that she was using an intimate act as a reward and punishments training program. All she said was, get out, get out, get out. And out I went. Then she texted me so I could come back inside and hold her as she cried. I was the one who said I was sorry. The problem was never resolved. Throughout the night, I was essentially doing the same thing in my inworld. Jack and Romeo could be a lot. Like April when angry, I realized. I remember always telling Sound and Callisto over text or through the telephone, you have to say the right thing. Apologize in the right way. I, I run into this daily. I have experience with this. You have to say the right thing. You have to do the right thing. Any mistake could mean death. Do you hear me? So I was essentially some sort of cross between a crisis hotline operator a hostage negotiator, and a 911 dispatcher. But I was always obliged to do so. I was often staying up until 6, 7, sometimes 10 in the morning just to have sound or Callisto text back. Yeah, we got to him in time. He's going to make it. I know Jack can go on these meltdowns, sound would say, but I really love him. We're so happy together when everything's normal. We just have to get through this one last problem. It was something that I could empathize with and didn't yet see the problem with the fact that I could. My main respite was that if I could dress myself early enough, I could snag a few hours of writing over at Gallery Espresso, usually with Vex by my side. 
grade A aesthetic, the best loose leaf tea, cluttered with antique armchairs, and it was where I'd met Elizabeth. The place was bloody charmed. Bex liked it too. Her favorite tea there was the Smoky Russian Caravan. I was used to people not seeing her. She told me that she was glamoured, and only people who were also non-human could appear through the planar curtains and see a small, blonde woman sitting next to me. On this particular day, Vex actually spotted my future best friend before I did. The one, the only, the fabric of my life, Cotton Chivarelli. Neb had met him once. It was at Mr. Pizza, now Stoner's Pizza, self-awareness at its finest. He'd shown off the demon voice his acid reflux had left him with as an ability, and she'd begged him to do the line from Aladdin, Who Disturbs My Slumber? The time I officially met him, we'd both been invited to a birthday party with one of April's multiple mall goth friends at an Asian restaurant. I'd arrived late. Can't remember why. I'm under the vague impression that April forgot to tell me until it already started, but I can't remember the details. What I do remember is that April hadn't bothered to save me a seat among the goth side of the table. The side I was sitting at was full of denim and polos. I'm not turning my nose up by any means, but the table was markedly segregated. I still remember Cotton. His rust-colored crescent moon hair had spurned the crown of his head to leave it bare, his leaf-green eyes that were more genuine than all of the unpolished emeralds in the world. His face was an interesting combination of handsome and cartoonish. It had a way of naturally exaggerating every expression he gave, which made him instantly likable. I honestly can't even remember what we talked about. We were clearly eyeing each other with, we're the odd ones out, apparently. I vaguely know who you are at best. Let's find some common ground. And he'd made me laugh. Whatever April had done to piss me off, I'd forgotten. Permanently, I guess? I'd had fun that night, despite the terrible service and the high school-esque sitting arrangements. And two weeks later, Vex was eyeing him in Gallery Espresso. You should go talk to him. You could use a human to keep you... Well human. I didn't know entirely what Vex had meant until I started talking to him. I hadn't realized that I needed to vent about April until I'd started to do so. Cotton had nodded knowingly, swapped stories of all of the ridiculous people we'd known and the absurd scenarios they'd lead us to, and I trusted him not to report back to April because we had, as he put it, an agreement of mutually assured destruction. I wouldn't talk to anyone he'd vented about, and he wouldn't talk to April. See? Mutually assured destruction. That's how it started. What would probably be one of the most important friendships of my life. The Watson to my homes, the Wilson to my house, the Greg Sestero to my Tommy Wiseau, the non-judgmental but sassy peanut gallery to my life with a heart of pure platinum. Gold is far too common. He was actually in the habit of asking me about my writing. At the time, I was rewriting my own backstory for Soxa had thought up for me, Zeitstück. It was a nice contrast to my romantic partner, who at the time spurned the book because I'd based a character off of the late Elizabeth as a tribute. You wrote her into your book, April had reasoned. You're basically using your book to emotionally cheat on me. You realize this is a dead girl I'm supposedly cheating on you with, yeah? I'm not exactly having weekly trysts in the cemetery. April hadn't liked when I pointed that out. But finally, through Cotton, 
I'd had a way to vent, and gods knew I would need it. Just like usual, April and I had been discussing where to go for dinner. It was already dangerously late, and we were running out of options. At a loss, I'd suggested Forsyth Cafe. I'd discovered it the day before on one of my runs. I didn't know then that it closed at 6pm at the latest, but desperation and all that. That immediately threw April into a tantrum. What is with you in that place? You're like obsessed. That's all you've been talking about for weeks. I'm sick of hearing about it. I, I discovered it yesterday on a run. I do realize upon reflection, one of my alters could have discovered it much earlier and this might have led to this confusion. But knowing April, I'd bet a paycheck's worth on her just lying for the convenience. But I'm sorry for bothering you for weeks about something I didn't know about yet. That must have been baffling. And there's no right answer. You at least should quit back with something witty. April picked up on it. She grabbed her satchel bag, slung it over her shoulder, and marched down to the room as if she were going to war. See, whenever I get anxious, my understanding defaults to my autism. People usually accuse me of being purposely obtuse. I'm really not. I'm just suddenly socially an idiot when my anxiety reaches beyond my threshold, which is often with explosive people. Oh, have you decided on a place? I'd said brightly. I tried to follow her out the door, but she slammed the door on my foot, despite or in spite of my stammering protest. Hey, what? I can't. Ow! She was already well ahead of me, head down, walking quickly. I'd thought her simply impatient to eat and no mood for discussion. We walked down the blocks of Oglethorpe, snaking through Liberty. It was already dark, sometime past 8pm, and it was misting down a light rain. We passed Sixpence, Fire, Parkers. Where are we going? I finally called. Is it somewhere I haven't been before? Please leave me alone, she called out. The voice was oddly high and shrill. It sounded precisely like her mother, Brenda, an abusive shrew of a woman that liked to speak in an odd, ringing baby voice on a casual basis. And when Brenda was being channeled, I was definitely in trouble. Please go away. My footsteps slowed. Damn it. I'd recognize this as one of Romeo's tactics. When he was angry with Callisto, he had a habit of taking off into the night so something bad could happen to him, and Callisto would feel even worse about having disagreed with him. As Romeo was friends with April, it made sense that they'd share the same guilting tactics. Are you going back to your dorm? I'm worried about you being out all night by yourself. Savannah was hardly one of those cities, but if anyone could find convenient trouble, it was fucking April. No! It sounded so much like Brenda, a fifty-something-year-old woman pretending to be a petulant child in the body of a twenty-year-old. Then where are we going? I don't know, and I don't care. Please leave me alone. I'd started texting Cotton about my predicament. We talked before how difficult it was to have dinner without it turning into a fight, and this was the latest example. I forget exactly what he'd texted back. Probably a combination of, oh dear lord, and suggestions on what to do. My alters generally weren't available until I was physically able to be alone, so it was good to be able to talk to someone about what was happening as it was happening. I followed April around a while more. We were going in circles. 
grazing Lafayette Square, cutting back through near McDonough's. After more than a half hour of this, she finally stopped under the awning under Jay Christopher's. We stood in silence, damp in the southern way, where we knew we probably wouldn't dry off until the weekend. I checked the time on my phone, texting Cotton to keep him updated. Sixpence and fire would still be open by now, I said to April. I imagined they wouldn't have a wait. April stood against the wall, arms crossed, refusing to look at me. I sighed. Look, I'm hungry. You said you wanted me to go leave you alone, and if you won't, I'll do that. Are you going back to the dorm? Yes, she shot at me. Okay. I walked two blocks down to fire. Despite this place having terminated my employment in a way that would make OSHA's hair curl, I love their food. I had fried dumplings and a sushi roll called the Ellis Roll. I texted Cotton. I finally got some food in me. No idea where she is, but it's nice to have a peaceful dinner for once. Does this happen all the time? I remember him asking. Because this seems weird, and you're talking about it like it's normal. There it was. The first inkling of, this might not be normal. Sure, April and I were queer and alternative. Nothing we did was normal. And she had a fucked up childhood. Brenda was if Bridezilla's was a person rather than a show. But I'd always had a sick, twisted pride in being able to handle my partner. Just barely. My resilience to April's bullshit had become my favorite talent, aside from writing. It was a constant mental exercise. Other people couldn't handle her. And that, at the time, seemed a failing on their part and a specialty of mine. An hour later... April texted me, predictably saying that she was having a hypoglycemic attack. From not eating. As per her usual, she misspelled a few texts in a row, but not so many that I didn't know what she was asking. She liked to create a feeling in which she were dying through text, as if you were witnessing her precious last words in blue and white font. Following her meekly but firmly given orders, I went to Spudnik. One space she seldom said no to, got her usual to go, and then snuck past uni security to deposit it at her door. She showed me through text that she would try to summon the strength to walk the few paces it would have taken to retrieve the baked potato. My head was swimming as I rode my moped home. I mean, Cotton's life, as I'd known it, wasn't precisely riddled with tragedy. He's still, to this date, the only friend of mine without PTSD. Of course, this would seem dysfunctional to him. And honestly, I'd reasoned, April was just having one of her bad weeks. Like when the holidays were too near, or it was too windy for her liking, or if her professor had just said something to piss her off, or or when she was broke. And if I just made sure that nothing I said could be construed to offend her, everything was right as rain. If everything just went right for her, she was a joy to be around, and that's what people didn't understand. Right? But he wasn't judging me, or even judging her.